It's a fact. Life can be hard, and dealing with its challenges is no mean feat. The ability to recover quickly in the face of adversity is known as resilience, and it can be our best ally during times of stress. Welcome to The Resilient Road. In this series, we'll look at human stories of perseverance, exploring what makes someone resilient and what we can all do to help nurture this process in our own lives. I'm Sinead, and I'm joined by my colleague Brian. Hello. And my colleague Elle. Hi there. And we're part of Positive Group, a team who use psychology and neuroscience to help people make positive changes to improve their health and well-being. Well, the morning of the fire seemed like any other day. I thought nothing of it. I thought nothing was out of the ordinary. I did know that the night before, we expected high winds, 60, 70 mile an hour winds. So I knew that and I didn't think anything of it till my neighbor called me and said, Nikki, the fire's behind my house, get out. Today, we're gonna to be hearing from some members of the community of Paradise, California, who survived one of the deadliest wildfires in history in 2018. One of the really powerful parts of this story is a really strong sense of community. And I know that that has been something that has been really important over the course of the pandemic for many people. Brian, do you feel a strong sense of community where you live? Yes, I think I do. I mean, I'm very fortunate. I've, I've lived here and worked here for a big chunk of my professional life and have a lot of friends, both professionally, but also that we've met locally. So I do feel I have a good network of social support, which is um, fantastic, you know, really helpful, and uh, particularly during the pandemic and contacting people and being in touch has been incredibly valuable. What about you, Al? I recently moved out of London to the Sticks. Well, it's just outside the M25. We've only been here a few months, but already it's sort of a smallish village and people pop round with daffodils. Someone brought some wood round for the fire because they knew we wouldn't have figured out how to do that yet. And it makes a big difference when you move somewhere and people show their support and, and sort of set things up for, I guess, being neighbours in the future. So we're quite lucky, really. Yeah, I, I like you, Elle. I moved in the last 12 months out of London. I actually moved country and moved to somewhere that I didn't know anyone. And it's been phenomenal how friendly and welcoming people are. And it makes such a difference just for people to give you some local knowledge and bring you a bunch of flowers, introduce you to their kids. I think what's quite interesting for us, we've reflected on, is we've just recently got a dog as well. And there's something about that that enters you into a community of people. It just sparks up connections and you feel a sense of affiliation and belonging with people. And I find that just so, so important over the course of the pandemic um, to feel that you are connected to people even though we're not kind of physically interacting in the way that we want to. So yeah, I think it's so, so important. What the community of Paradise faced was something truly terrifying. What will be interesting to hear is how they managed to function in the face of that trauma and how they collectively move forward. This episode contains descriptions of the traumatic events faced by the community during the fire, which some listeners may find upsetting. The town of Paradise, um, it, it's a mountainous community, many pine trees, rolling hills, creeks and small valleyways on the ridge between two large canyons that are about 800 to 1,000 feet deep on both sides of town. The air is real crisp and clear. The smell of pine is beautiful. The serenity is fantastic. It was just a really special place where you felt like you were camping all the time. And it was a very small, close-knit community that um, was kind of amongst the trees uh, that made it really special and appealing. Well, when I moved here, what drew me was the sense of community. People look out for each other. It's very close-knit. It was a very friendly community, about 26,000 people, and it was easy to make friends and become involved. It's that sense of togetherness that 
the longer I lived here, the more I felt it. In paradise, it's not if the fire should strike, it's when the fire strikes. It's so you always have to be prepared for the next fire. My name is Mark Maddox. I am the public works director and town engineer for the town of Paradise in Butte County, California. Certainly being ready and understanding the threat of wildfires was something we knew moving to Paradise. You know, going through an evacuation, we had our plan, we had our go bag, we knew what we would grab if if there was an evacuation and we knew where we would go. And those are the types of things that we preach um, as the government agency with the town of Paradise to our community in helping plan and uh, train for responding to wildfires. I'm Jody Jones. I was the mayor of Paradise. Mark Maddox is a very unique individual. He was fairly young when he came to the town. The first time I saw him, I thought he was about 17. And then he gave his first presentation to council and he's amazing. It was Mark who developed the ContraFlow plan for our evacuation, which is where you take all the lanes of a road and you make them go one direction. We practiced it so our residents could see how it all worked and we used it. We had a number of small fires in the intervening years. We used the zone system. One of those fires, we evacuated three zones, but nothing else. They stopped the fire and it didn't burn down any houses. And we patted ourselves on the back and said, we've got a good system here. So you know the threat is always there, uh, but I'm not sure anything could have prepared me for what really happened in 2018. My name is Bill Hartley, and I've lived in Paradise now the past 40 years. I joined the Paradise Police Department and uh, started my career here. When I left the police department, my wife and I bought a little candy store, a little chocolate factory. I also joined the Gold Nugget Museum and am currently the vice president of the museum. On the day of the fire, um, I was driving to work early in that morning. It was around seven o'clock and I noticed the um, large smoke cloud in the sky, but it looked quite a distance away. I'm Nikki Jones and I have been a resident of Paradise, California for 22 years. The morning of the fire seemed like any other day. I thought nothing of it. I thought nothing was out of the ordinary. I did know that the night before, we expected high winds, 60, 70 mile an hour. So I knew that, but I didn't think anything of it till my neighbor called me and said, Nikki, the fire's behind my house, get out. The fire started about 6.30, but I wasn't aware of the fire until closer to 7 when I received a text that there was a fire in Polga. And Polga's, I believe, about 13 miles east of Paradise, quite a long ways. And so I continued about my morning and even dropped my kids off at school closer to 7.45. And um, within 15 minutes from dropping them off, I was calling my wife to try and get her ready um, to go pick them up. You know, I had no idea at that point still that um, there was an actual threat to paradise. Local radio said that the fire had jumped this large canyon, now was threatening our town and was burning towards our hospital. And then 10 or so minutes later, it said the hospital was on fire, so it was moving rapidly. We had not seen a fire progress that rapidly towards our community in the past. With the high winds, it drove it into town and it was just too large a fire to uh, contain. Uh, the fire was moving 80 football fields per minute. And it became really clear to me that we were on the precipice of a major, major evacuation event. Um, the community started to see what was happening and having ashes fall um, in the town and the, the sky turning a different color was quite um, alarming for anyone and um, definitely 
you know, setting off those internal alarm bells that we all have that this isn't right, I need to leave, and it's time to get out. So when I did get home, my wife was ready to go. We were able to evacuate, and as we left our home, there was a fire already in our backyard. I wasn't frantic, but I was in a mode like, I have to do this and I have to get out. I put my animals in the car, grabbed anything that I could grab. I was ready to get in my car and I said, oh, I'll go back and get my computer. And instead of grabbing the flash drive with the memory, I don't know why I did this, but I was like unplugging the computer, <laughs> all the wires in the printer, and then, Propane tanks were exploding like right outside my door. At that point I realized, you know, it's not worth it. And that's when I left. Got in my car and stopped and picked up my neighbor. And as I started to pull away with her in the car, the fire was probably a hundred feet from my house. This was the fire of all fires. This was nothing like anybody had ever seen before. You couldn't outrun it. You couldn't basically outdrive it. As the morning progressed, um, I just felt that the best thing I could do would be to go out into the field and try and see what I can do to help. And I started flagging traffic and I didn't stop for many, many hours. And I stayed out in the field as the fire continued to develop. You know, still unbeknownst to me, about the actual damage that was occurring in other parts of the town. I could just see the amount of cars funneling our direction to this kind of one pinch point. And as the sky was turning dark, it was kind of like a sea of red lights, of just tail lights, five lanes wide of cars that were evacuating out of paradise. They started with just evacuating zones, but after that, they put out the evacuate the whole town call, which we had to do because there was fire everywhere. But what that does is it inundates your roadways. No town anywhere in any country builds their roads to a capacity that they can take everyone who lives there all at the same time. All the practice we did and the fact that we had a plan helped us a lot. I think if we had not had those things, uh, a lot more people would have died. Meanwhile, before communications infrastructure started to fail, I was able to call my wife and say, where are you? You know, how's it going getting out? And it took her hours. You know, she was evacuating like everybody else towards me and um, at one point even drove past me and I waved to her and the girls and said goodbye and I love you. And she continued on forward. And so that decision was really hard, but an important one for me to do my job, but one that I struggle with, you know, looking back is, is whether or not to get in the car with them. I could have left with them and, and gotten off the hill five hours sooner and not have to see the things that I saw. All the roads were so crowded, it was just time consuming getting from A to B. We went down this main road called Skyway and that was the road where fire was on either side of us. Fire was going under our car, empty vehicles burning on either side of us as we were driving down the hill. And that's the only moment in the whole incident that I felt I might not make it. So we drove out and we were fortunate to make that decision a little earlier than many others. We look back in horror as we arrived at safety to see the, the entire mountain on fire. Later learned that many of the people stuck in traffic and their cars had caught on fire. Uh, some people had perished. And some people were low on fuel and their cars ran out of gas and they had to get out of the car and flee and run down the road and, and knock on other people's car windows or, or jump in the beds of trucks to, to try to save themselves. As I'm driving through, I'm seeing firemen, policemen, and they're not fighting the fire. Their whole mission at that point was evacuation, saving lives, getting people out. And once I realized that no one was fighting the fire, I knew I would be coming back to my house.
By the time I got to the bottom of the hill, I knew that the fire had devastated our town. I made it back to where my wife and kids were and I reunited with them. And uh, we just, you know, held each other like, you're like, what just happened? You know, we don't know if our home is there or not. And I I still believed our home was going to be fine. Um, And so we went to sleep that night praying and um, and giving thanks for our safety um, after a day that nobody will ever forget. Wow, that's a really scary story. Um, and one of the things that really stands out for me is the line that comes quite early in that segment where they talk about the fact that with paradise, it's not if, but when the fires will come. And I think one of the questions that lots of people have would be, how could you live your life under those circumstances? But for me, the the very opening section to this where they talk about how idyllic it is, the mountains, the pine trees, the canyons, like always camping, the sense of community, like those are all the things that I personally would look for in a place to live. And what we know about this community is that the the people in the story had prepared for the emergency and they had done this collectively. And I think that's what helped them to anticipate some of what was to come, but definitely not the extent. Elle, is there anything that's emerged from you from the story so far that you think is interesting? So I was thinking how at a personal level, they're all experiencing a life-threatening situation, but because the community means so much to them, they're also terrified for their community. They obviously had such a beautiful sort of place that they were also proud of and they understood the risks of living there but I think nothing can prepare you for for what actually happened so yeah I sort of feel the heartbreak on their behalf really. Brian what stood out for you from the story so far? I, I think it's just the the speed and the power of of the fire I mean you know 80 football pitches per minute the devastation and the fragility and our our relative impotence when these things happen in the face of huge natural disasters like this. I mean, it's just terrifying. You get that real essence that it's the people in this place as much as the place, which is what makes it so special. And I think what they had in their sense of community was some of the ingredients of a good, resilient response to something like this that was quite so devastating and challenging. So I'd love to explore in a little bit more detail how important social support is and how that feeds into this theme of resilience. The social support's definitely there, like the strong relationships. But I think also there's this sense of this social cohesion, which is something that occurs at a community level. And actually, one of the questions that you ask in psychology research linked to social cohesion is whether people feel they're in a close-knit community, whether people share values, whether people trust each other. When the people in this story talk, they use all of those words, so they sort of epitomise high social cohesion. So social support's often about dyadic sort of two-way relationships, and they're really protective. But this social cohesion, which is kind of bigger than that, is also itself incredibly protective. And there's loads of research that shows how people who live in highly socially cohesive communities report better psychological health on average. And that, no doubt, will be really important to their sort of recovery and how they respond to what happened to them. And that's fascinating how protective it can be, I think. And a lot of the work that we do with groups at Positive is really trying to understand the risk and protective factors associated with well-being and the things that you can do to build up resilience. And we always advocate this social connection component to things and, and how important it is. Brian, what are your thoughts on the benefits of social support? You know, Elle was saying it's protective at a generic level, but in the face of trauma, in the face of difficult things, in the face of what the the characters in this story are facing, what's your thoughts on the role of social support? I think medicine has always found it difficult because medicine by default is a sort of reductionist process. So we look at humans and then organs and then tissues and then cells and then proteins or DNA. This is actually looking outside the person and looking at at their connections impacting on their health. And 
The social impact is, and you can see this, the demographics and all the data on how communities um, work. It's basically a form of human nourishment. It's neurobiological. It changes your brain chemistry. It changes your physiology. And I think this is really key. It's difficult for us to understand how, but you see this in babies, you know, from the cradle to the grave, the attachment and the connection of a baby with its mother, the, the for us as adults, the, the quality of our connection and our support is incredibly nourishing. And in fact, it's a big area of medicine now looking at what's called social genomics. And the quality of your, your relationship switches on genes and switches off genes. So good social support, a sense of belonging and inclusion switches on good genes. Isolation, loneliness, exclusion switch on bad genes. And this probably explains why the quality of your social support correlates to your physical health, your mental health, but also your longevity, as well as obviously the quality of your life. And and I think, you know, Robert Putnam's book, Bowling Alone, he's studied the quality of human relationships and argues that social capital is diminishing. And I think what Paradise highlights is this uh, social cohesion, this sense of community, this sense of connection. And I think that's sometimes because they're facing potential threat, which tends to make people coalesce and come together. And I think that sense of community, I wonder, that's got to be a crucial factor in why people would live in the risky situation that they're living in, um, in a high-risk fire zone. I think that sort of helps to demonstrate the power of how much community can mean intrinsically to individuals. And as a result, they're quite happy to live with that risk and have systems in place should the worst things happen. What's quite interesting as well is to consider the role and the value that we place on community in the modern world. And I think the people who were living in paradise, they understood that intrinsically. But I think what we've seen over the last 18 months, when the world's had to slow down in the face of the pandemic, we've changed how we work, how we live. And we've actually kind of started to question some of our more individualistic behaviours and really start to tap into the necessity and the power of community, of being part of something, of having a support network. And I've certainly noticed shifts in behaviours in in friendship groups and work colleagues where people are they, they appear to be more attuned to those benefits and to be investing more time in the collective. And we've seen some wonderful kind of acts of kindness, acts of support at the group level over the past 18 months than I can ever really remember in, in my lifetime. So I think there is something interesting happening at the moment where there's an opportunity for us to kind of reshine the focus or the spotlight onto the collective rather than the individual. Brian, anything you want to say to that? I think that's really, really powerful. The pandemic has, I think, had huge devastation in our in our community, but I think it's also helped us perhaps refocus on what's important in our lives. I think it's rather like in 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 life, you know, when we when we have uh, something happens to us, particularly illness or disease, we we can start to recalibrate and think what what are the important things, what are the things that nourish my spirit, and I think there is a sense now that that. Um, the materialism, the competitiveness, the individualistic nature, the, the worship of celebrity isn't the whole answer and that we're social animals and we get such a level of nourishment from good and uh, supportive social connection. And that's another thing that I noticed in what the people are saying in these stories. They're very much bigging each other up. So um, they, they kind of call out Mark for being, you know, so great in his field at a very young age and really changing things up in the town. They're very supportive of each other and their strengths and calling those out and recognizing them. And I, I love that essence of, you know, one person can only get us so far, but the group and the, the group's collective profile of strengths actually moves us into a different space. I think that's just a lovely nice it gives me a it gives me a nice warm feeling to kind of hear them talk about each other so positively that's because you're irish Sinead. well that's true brian <laughs> <laughs> what we see with this group is a group that is set up to survive difficult things because they have that social support there in abundance so shall we hear what happens next and how they respond in the aftermath of the fire After the fire, we learned that 90% of our community was destroyed. Our water was tainted, the smoke and ash were still in the air. 
And I think everybody was in a state of shock. What I remember thinking about driving through town was how gray it was. It was unreal. I'll never forget driving past burned vehicle after burned vehicle, and there's nobody around, and just this deafening silence that um, that's hard to duplicate. The devastation was astounding. It was like driving through a war zone. Unfortunately, it uh, brought back a flashback for me because of my time that I spent in Vietnam as a young Marine, seeing a uh, village that had been destroyed by fighting and bombing and fire, destruction. And I thought that was terrible. And when I saw my own town look worse than that, uh, it was just beyond any belief that you would see that type of horror and destruction ever. A couple of months went by, and um, once my day-to-day job resumed, trying to assess damage and, and figure out a path to recovery, I found myself engaging in what I would call kind of a destructive behavior of, of ordering lunch, and I'd go park in my driveway next to my debris, you know, the burned-down house with, you know, scraggly metal and a tricycle that, you know, just as a frame... And so I would sit there and I'd have, have lunch and just kind of visualize what it looked like before at the same time of while I'm looking at it completely destructed. I mean, at that point, um, I was still experiencing nightmares and dreams. And it was kind of in that where I made this determination in my head that I had to leave my job and that it was not good for me to keep working up there and I have to remove myself from the situation to stop experiencing this re-traumatization, this self-induced re-traumatization at some point. And I was done. I, I had to leave. What helped me the most was to focus on what was still there. And there was still a lot there that is helping us um, immeasurably to rebuild. Our town hall survived, our police station survived, two out of our three fire stations, our library, our high school, our hardware store, two grocery stores, things that you really need in order to be able to start over. The post office still standing, the DMV office is still standing. People were looking to me, to the other council people for leadership, They didn't know what to do. Nobody, I mean, everybody was displaced. It's difficult to be in a position, especially as a mayor, to handle a devastating loss where there is no book to follow. We were blessed that a woman with her experience was able to take the reins and help guide our community back towards rebuilding and resurgence. Some days it was, oh my gosh, what have I gotten into? How, how did I get here and, and what am I going to do? And other days it was, you have a skill set that is useful and God put you here for a reason. It did help me a lot to have that role and that job to do at that time. The local communities from the neighboring towns came together to help Paradise as well. Residents in those towns took people into their homes so they'd have a place to live. They even, Christmas that year, they had a tree lighting ceremony in their park and they included Paradise and the Paradise Town Council in lighting their Christmas tree. It it all meant a lot to to the residents and to all of us. Throughout my life, I have always been a doer. And after the fire, I just started doing. One foot in front of the other. What can I do in my town? What can I do, you know, to build my home? What can I do to help my neighbor? I've just, over the years, have been able to deal with things in a logical Uh, practical way and I just have this sense of attitude I will not give up 
Nikki Jones is a citizen in our community that really is someone you'd put up front when you talk about spirit. Someone who is energetic, involved in the community, knows everybody. Nikki is such a neat lady. She's one of the business women in town. Prior to the fire, she owned a dress shop and a candle shop. She's in her 70s. She has more energy than I do. She's just a dynamic lady. I have one speed and that's nonstop. <laughs> and so many people go, oh my gosh, I wish I had your energy. <laughs> I go, well, it is what it is. <laughs> oh. After the fire, she decided uh, because we had no restaurants or any place to gather as a community, that she was gonna open um, a little restaurant and bar. I guess in my heart, I felt it would be a comfort to the community and something that I could do. So I did. <laughs> I learned that if I help others, I'm helping myself, I'm healing myself because I'm not thinking about my problems so much. I'm thinking about how we can move forward. And when we lost our museum, we knew that we could not let all of our volunteers and other people that were associated with the museum be out of work or without a cause to help. So myself and a, a couple other museum board members, we started making plans about how we could find another building to start the museum up again. And we found a building that happened to be right across the street from our old museum. It survived the fire and it was on property that we could purchase. That kept me going because I knew then that it would help contribute to the community spirit again, uh, let people know that our museum was coming back and they can see if the museum's coming back, the town's coming back. To some extent, I knew it as I was leaving that I had made a mistake. The longer I stayed away, the more I felt like I gave up what I was built to do, what my purpose was. I felt like I was missing out on the recovery and I was almost envious of the people who were still trying and they were giving it the best they had. And I felt like I had to answer the call and go back to help support the community. And uh, we've made so much progress and it's just unbelievable the amount of uh, work that remains, but also the hope and positivity that uh, just overflows at every turn. I think that we've started the exit from that tunnel, but there is a lot of work still to do. I think five years from now, our town is gonna to be beautiful. I think other people are gonna to wanna to move here and we're all gonna have a good life. We're all making it together. I think disasters bring out the best in people. Yes, it brings out some of the worst, but for the most part, it brings out the best in people. And here, let me help you. Here, you know, have a bottle of water, or have a lantern. That is just such a heartfelt feeling when people do that. You know, yeah, you know, because we're all in the same boat. We do have some awesome people in this community, and that's the fire, again, brought out the best of that. The pain will always be there. Uh, I still get quite emotional by our loss, but it isn't as severe as it was. And I know the more I talk about it, the more I can help others, or the more people help me, and the more healing takes place. And I started writing poetry, just writing about the devastation and the fire. And for me, that became a therapy, and I felt better as a result of it. And it all started from the loss of the founder of our museum, who was a very good friend, whose name was Sam. Many of us that know Sam felt that the fire caused so much stress in his life that caused his heart attack. Losing him was very tragic for me. He had a, a, a dream one night about Sam. This was six months after the fire. When I got up and walked to my desk, it was about 3 a.m. 
and started writing a poem to Sam. And I called the poem For Sam's Sake. Our beloved museum is gone, along with the artifacts of yesterday. Only ashes tell the story of what once was. When the sorrows dripped away, will strength and resilience rule the day? Yes, we are the new pioneers. We will put away our fears and wipe away the tears as we rebuild for future years. We will overcome the memories of yesterday. The future is ours to make. Let's do it for Sam's sake. What you detect listening to this part of the story is feelings of hope and a focus on what is still there in paradise and what can be rebuilt. And so far, we've been focusing on the, the collective side of resilience. And what I'd love to explore next is some of the individual things that these people are doing to help them be resilient, to help them recover, to help them deal with what has happened to them, to their family, to their town. And I'd love to start with Nikki. There's an area of psychology that we touch a lot on in our programs at Positive called acceptance and commitment. And for me, Nikki really embodies this. Nikki's got this lovely phrase in the story where she says, it is what it is. And I think that kind of really sums up her and her approach. She is completely devastated by what has happened to her town and the fact that all of these things have been taken away, but she doesn't dwell in it. She says, you know, I've got one speed and that's nonstop. I've got energy. I've got things that I can do. I've always been practical. I've always been can do. So what she starts to tune into is what can she do to help her neighbor? What can she do to help the town? And she sees gaps and she sees the fact that there's no place for people to come together. And knowing how important a physical space is to build a sense of community and cohesion, she plows her energy into that. She sets up the, the restaurant and bar. And she creates this lovely gathering space. And you can hear in the voices of the other characters and how they talk about her that this has actually been a really important part of their ability to move forward and to start to think about recovery. And it's been a really positive outcome for them. So I, I just love that line that she also says that disasters can bring out the best in people. Yes, this has been really horrible and people are really struggling, but you see this amazing side of, of humanity and human nature. And that I get the essence that is really fueling her. That's helping her to move forward. When we at Positive work with groups and we work with leaders, we talk about this ability of good leaders to convert threat to challenge. And this is what you get a real essence of with Nikki. She's, she's leaned into the challenge and she's really doing everything she can to help move not just herself and her business and her neighbours forward, but the whole town of paradise. And I just absolutely love that. And I think you, you see some other lovely examples of leadership from the other characters in the stories, from Mark to Jodie, and, and people really talk positively about them and what they've been able to do for the town. Brian, do you have any thoughts on any of the other characters in the story? Mark obviously was devastated, as were so many people. But I think one of the things he had was this very strong sense of responsibility prior to the fire. He talks about his own destructive behaviour when he parks in the driveway of his home to have his lunch and he visualises what was and how it used to be and he focuses on the loss and he talks about his nightmares and his dreams and he felt he couldn't cope with it anymore. And I think this, this is a really interesting process because he's, he's looking at what was and that actually accentuates his sense of loss. So he, he effectively relives it and we don't do this on purpose, but we often relive our traumas and we go back over them, we disinter them, we review them. Now, going back over them actually activates the same neural circuit that was activated with the index incident. So you basically relive it. And this is a process called functional equivalence, particularly if it's associated with imagery. So he's sitting there and seeing this devastation, but comparing it to what it was beforehand. And I think this reliving is re-traumatizing. And then he says, well, I have to leave. What's so wonderful is that he then recognizes later that leaving was a mistake. He answers the call. He comes back and he's caught up in that hope, that positivity. 
and that exit from the tunnel of gloom that he's got locked into. And I think I it's a really, really powerful message here. We can all get locked into that, into that circuitry in our brain where we keep going back over negative experiences. But I think for me, the antithesis of this was, was Nikki, who, as you said, Sinead, converts the threat to challenge. And the great thing of, of, about switching your eyes to the horizon, focusing on rebuilding, uh, it, it, it allows you to stop the cognitive emotional fusion that's associated with that rumination of going back over bad things. It also highlights the real importance for us as human beings for developing emotional processing. We need to have ways of processing emotion. And Elle, what about you? Who were you focused in on in that story? So I became quite attached to Bill. Bill talked about how he he was a young Marine and um, how he'd actually, it was really hard for him, this disaster, because it reminded him of the of the war, of the destruction he saw. So for him, this was an incredibly difficult situation. He does something really interesting where he woke up at three in the morning and decided to write a poem. And I think when you're really distressed or anxious or you have sort of emotions inside you which just aren't very nice, then what can happen is it can be really hard to get rid of them, to regulate them. And actually what he did was he decided to write a poem, which essentially is helping him to process his emotions. So it's an interesting strategy for managing emotions. We talk a lot about that at Positive. So just finding different outlets and releases for some of these emotions that we're feeling that just aren't very nice. And if we can't get rid of some of these emotions, what happens is we can try and suppress them, but it doesn't really work. And what can happen is they can really start to have this wear and tear on us. So it's lovely that he wrote the poem for Sam, um, for Sam's sake, because that will have really, it sounds like that really helped him. And what's lovely about poetry as well is it's really helped him, but in sharing his poetry, it's going to be helping others as well and helping others to think through their emotions and to start to think about the importance of regulating them and go on a journey as well. So I think that's, again, that lovely loop back into the community side of things. So he's done something for himself that has helped others as well, which is fantastic. And the other person to consider and the role that she played in this story was Jodie, who was the town mayor and I think one of the things to consider about her trajectory as mayor is that prior to the fire, her, her role was mostly ceremonial. And then post-fire, her role changed dramatically. And I think one of the lovely things that you see is Bill call her out for her exceptional skill set and her ability to lead the town and everything that she did to help move the town forward. One of the really compelling and lovely things that made me really connect to Jodie is that bit where she says, you know, there were some days when I didn't feel equipped to do this, where I felt overwhelmed, I didn't know what to do. And then there were other days where I felt, no, do you know what? You have this, you have this skill set. you're here for a reason, do what you can. And I think when we have leaders who are very human in that way, who can show their vulnerability, but also very authentically seek to lead people forwards, that is very, very compelling. And it's very reassuring for people during times of challenge and uncertainty, where you've got someone who's able to say, I don't have all the answers, but what I am going to do is I'm going to work really hard for you and with you to help move us forward. And another thing I really liked about Jodie was her ability to recognize that the the social network didn't begin and end within paradise. She talked about the wider and surrounding communities as well and how important it was that they got invited to the, the Christmas ceremony at one of the neighbouring towns. So she's got this ability to think through a broader lens as well and to think about how we enhance our community and our sense of connection, but how we connect to the wider world as well, which I thought was another really powerful part of the story and something which was probably really helpful in terms of helping move through the after aftermath of the fire. What fascinates me about this story is how you see the component parts come together. So we've got these very clear characters who are dealing with things in their own way and doing what they can to move forward. But they are all individually doing something for other people. And you get this contagion, you get this kind of normative behavior that starts to spread. And I think one of the things that put this group in very good stead for the level of trauma and loss that they encountered was the fact that they already had an established strong sense of community and they didn't let go of that. Actually, in dealing with and processing 
the the trauma, the challenge, the difficulty, they tuned into not only what helps me, but what helps my neighbor, what helps our town and group. And you get this kind of broaden and build contagion effect where actually everyone is tuned into the social network, supporting group recovery, supporting the, the town to be what it once was or, or perhaps even better. So they've got this collective vision for the town as well. Brian, anything you'd like to, to kind of add to that? Because I know in Positive, we do a lot of work with groups around the importance of connection, the importance of good, strong social norms. Anything you'd like to pick out? What you mentioned about social networks, there's a lot of research on social networks now. And one of the leading researchers is a chap called Nicholas Christakis. He talks about social networks and what he calls three degrees of separation. So if if you're kind to somebody, that person receives your kindness, but they're much more likely to be kind to the person that they meet. And that person they meet is then more likely to be kind to the person they meet. And this is a sort of social contagion. It cascades through groups very quickly. And what he's demonstrated is that you have statistical significance on this contagion up to three degrees of separation. So your friend's friend's friend benefits from your kindness. It starts to shift the way way we treat each other. And if organizations get their head around this, then you can actually start to mitigate stress, improve social cohesion, and actually people's quality of life and enjoyment improve. So I, I think this is a fantastic route to go down. And I think this community were doing it before, but as um, as Nikki said, often disasters pull people together in a more, much more powerful way. Elle, have you got anything to add? Yeah, so I think um, when people have experienced something that's really great in their lives, like that sense of community, when the disaster struck, rebuilding that became the purpose. And essentially, this sense of purpose just means that people are really motivated to make things better. And I think if you didn't have that, sense of community so imagine paradise was a terrible place where no one got on and they all hated each other if it burnt down you probably wouldn't have seen anyone rebuild it so the same event could happen so the same buildings destroyed but without that human connection that sense of community there's there's nothing necessarily to rebuild it would just become a dead space really it's almost like the invisible foundations on which they rebuild. It's, it's the groundwork's already there and, and they can build the community on top of it. So what stands out to me as a really key takeaway from this story is to be a bit more Nikki. So I really, I really enjoyed her character in the story, but I love that comment, it is what it is. And actually, if we can accept when things are difficult and tough and then commit to noticing the action that we can take to positively move ourselves and other people forwards. I think that's a very noble endeavor, but it's also really linked into recovery and moving forwards. I think just engaging and using our energy and our focus on the things that we can influence, the outcomes we can change and trying to get some positive momentum there. I think that's a, that's a fabulous approach to a situation like this. Elle, what about you? What's your key takeaway? Other than the fact a lot of people in paradise seem like absolute legends, it's the piece that Nikki said about how disasters can bring out the best in people. And I think that that's essentially what resilience is. You can't show resilience in the absence of adversity or challenge. So what people are experiencing and showing is resilience. And I think it's really idiosyncratic in terms of very individual in terms of how people respond to challenges. And actually, they all found their own little way through it um, using a a number of different um, techniques that we've talked about. So, yeah, I think it's just that resilience is really individualistic and it's about finding your own process and your own way through things. I think that's a lovely point, Elle. And I think the stories we explore in this series are so extraordinary, but your point is actually that resilience is actually quite ordinary and it's something that we all have within us and we can all find our own path through it. I think that's a lovely takeaway. What about you, Brian? Yeah, I mean, I'd echo what you both said. And I think this story of paradise, I think, highlights for me the extraordinary power of of social support, social cohesion, social glue, And I think it helps the healing and the rebuilding. And um, I think we all know it's nourishing. 
intuitively, both you know with our, with, with you know with our children and with our with one another and in communities. Uh, I think what's fascinating to me is its impact on physical and mental health, but also what people can then do. I think the important thing is probably not to have to wait for a disaster for it to become what we do around here. And I think if we can find ways to pay it forward, I think if the, if we can find ways to create those social networks where we know that it's contagious and it impacts on people. And I think it's down to us to take responsibility to do that. And I think what they all did in Paradise was to create a, a process where they all did it for each other. And uh, I think they really gained huge benefits from that process. The story of the Paradise community really shows the importance of building good social support, to be able to lean on it when going through challenging times. This is something that we can all benefit from. So do take time to invest in the people around you, the people that matter to you, and to build good social networks. If you're interested in learning more about the psychological skills and concepts that we talk about in this series, we're now running open positive programs for people from all backgrounds. The program trains you in four core areas of psychological capability and helps you to develop practical skills which will allow you to adapt and thrive both in your personal and professional lives. You can find out more by following the link in the description and you can also save 10% with our special Resilient Road discount code, RR10. If you've enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe, share and leave a review. It really helps us to reach more people. Next time, we'll be hearing a story from Hersha Patel, who showed remarkable resilience in the face of a global public shaming. The Resilient Road is brought to you by Positive Group and Radio Wolfgang. It was presented by me, Shania Divine French, with Brian Marion and Elle Crush. It featured Bill Hartley, Nikki Jones, Mark Maddox and Jody Jones. A special thank you to Colette Curtis and the residents of Paradise for sharing their stories with us. This episode was produced by Natalia Rodriguez, Cass Denton, Eli Block and Paloma Kaufman with sound design by Natalia Rodriguez and Eli Block. It was mixed by Paloma Kaufman and the executive producer was Ellie DiMartino. For more information about Positive Group and the work that we do, go to www.positivegroup.org. Mm-hmm.